0: You want the support before the shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. You want to do your research, interview your people, and establish a working relationship with somebody so that that is part of your foundation for every day. So that then when the shit hits the fan, you don't have to solve all the problems to get support.
1: When was the last time you asked for help? The last time you tried to solve a problem by asking for guidance instead of throwing yourself into Google? The last time you told someone about something that was really weighing on you, not looking for answers, but just reaching out for empathy and understanding. I can't remember the last time I did. So if you're having a hard time picturing that moment, I am right there with you. I've built my identity around being the one with the answers, the one who has it all together. And of course, much of that has been a mask for how utterly out of place and clueless I feel most of the time. The more I can present myself as a smart, successful, and altogether resourceful leader, the less likely I am to consciously worry about being rejected. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What works. The show that explores how small business owners are building stronger businesses without the shoulds and supposed tos. Today, we're talking about cultivating emotional resilience and accessing support as a small business owner. In their book, Burnout, Drs. Emily and Amelia Nagoski term the collection of symptoms we face as the ones who have to have it all together as human giver syndrome. The human giver idea actually comes from the philosopher Kate Mann, who uses it to make a distinction between the expectations put on women, along with people of color, queer people, immigrants, and other marginalized groups, and the expectations we put on white men. Human givers are the people who human beings rely on for moral support, emotional labor, admiration, attention, and care. The Nagoskis suggest that human givers who give and give without the ability to take time to receive support for their own labor and stress are on a fast track to burning out. I think the same dynamic can play out with business owners, no matter their gender. Under-resourced business owners are often relied on for moral support, strategic direction, project management, post-mortem analysis, and planning, with little ability to receive support on those tasks, or many others. What's more our culture valorizes entrepreneurs who do this work day in and day out for long hours with no breaks. Of course, none of that valor translates into a better safety net and more abundant collective resources for business building. Now, I'm in no way trying to make entrepreneurs the subject of sympathy. The upside to building a business, even as an under-resourced business owner, can be immense. But that doesn't lessen the strain of making that upside reality. It's hard, and it's lonely, and it often goes unrecognized. Even though I am one of the many business owners who has a hard time setting aside my I've-got-it-all-together identity to ask for and receive support, I've created a container where people do this on a daily basis. And one of the people I observe who is not only skilled at asking for support, but has the professional chops to explain to me how she's done it and why it matters, is therapist and resilience consultant Shulamit Berlevtov. From the jump, I've been so impressed with the way Shuli elegantly names her needs, directly asks for support, and clearly states her boundaries. Every time she shares, it's a little mini masterclass for me. So I wanted to bring her into this extended conversation on teaming up. Julie and I talk about how she ended up working on resilience for women business owners, why she took a month off last year to prevent her own period of burnout, and how she structures the ways she asks for support. Julie also walks us through some exercises for naming our own emotions and needs. Now, let's find out what works for Shulamit Berlevtov. Shulamit, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to What Works. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right, so I'm really excited about this conversation because it is one that is near and dear to my heart. It's one that I have so many personal questions around, and I have also just really loved getting to know you and your both your professional and your personal perspective on this topic. So with that being said, if you're open to it, I would love to start with some of your personal context for the professional interest that you have in supporting entrepreneurs entrepreneurial women with resilience, vulnerability, and navigating emotion at the intersection of life and work.
0: When I went back to school uh, to get my master's in counseling and spirituality, which is a goal that I had had most of my life, um, I knew that this was my quote-unquote retirement plan. So I needed to set myself up to be able to do this work basically until I dropped dead, right? And so, you know, in school, they teach you Uh, how to be good at what you do, but they don't teach you how to be an entrepreneur. They don't teach you how to run a business. So as soon as I graduated, I dove right into business training because there are two things people say. One is that most small businesses fail in the first year. And the second one is mental health and helping professionals are not good with money. And I was damned if that was going to be my story. Mm -hmm. So understanding entrepreneurship and understanding how to run a business, I was hanging out with entrepreneurs and so I lived my own emotional roller coaster as I went through the trials and tribulations of setting up a business. But also, I, there were no other therapists at the time hanging out with entrepreneurs. And so I really had a privileged position as a witness to their struggles. Uh, but entrepreneurs don't, as a rule in my understanding, need psychotherapy per se. What they need is good professional emotional support. Mm. and there's a barrier paying for psychotherapy comes for entrepreneurs out of their after-tax income and most entrepreneurial poverty is the thing a lot of entrepreneurs don't have a lot of disposable income after taxes right so I formulated my offer as a consultant because that is a business expense and that eliminates the barrier to access to the appropriate kind of mental health support that entrepreneurs needed. And that's how I ended up
1: doing this work, was from that experience. That's fascinating, and I did not know that, and I love it. <laughs> um, I love the consideration of that, that piece of it. I'm curious if you could sort of compare and contrast for us or differentiate for us the, uh, between psychotherapy and consulting or coaching and, and um, maybe what the goals of each are.
0: In my experience, the kind of psychotherapy that I did was focused on healing hurts it was looking backwards to understand how the past shows up in the present understanding how that happens and working to be more in choice around that and the consulting work that i do is kind of threefold there is the emotional at listening side that is the same in therapy. It's developing the relationship, right? And that's important, I think, for any on a nervous system level. You have to feel safe, like experientially safe, in order to be able to step into vulnerability. And I think that's the case for any kind of personal development work. So, as a consultant, that's an like the the, the bedrock of the work that I do. Then we look at um, we look we do a strengths weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis uh, of your skills in uh, resilience and mindset. And we then do some, we apply your skills to the problems that you're facing as an entrepreneur. And we develop skills that you, like we address the gaps by developing skills and then support you in applying those to the work that you do. So it's much more Concrete and directed toward forward movement mm-hmm. in a much more focused way. Therapy leads you there too, and it's more um, diffuse, I would say. Whereas the consulting work that I do is very concrete and specific toward a, a future-oriented work.
1: Wonderful, thank you for explaining that. Cause I, I, I mean, the difference to me is always a little fuzzy and I know for our listeners it is probably very fuzzy as well. Um, okay, so backing up a little bit, uh, are you open to talking about your burnout and what led you there and how you've moved through it? Yes, I would adjust the language.
0: For me, it sure. was not a burnout. I took a stress leave. Mm. And I think it's important to make the distinction that the stress leave was to prevent the burnout. So I was not at a crash and burn situation, but I would have been had I not taken this pause. Mm. So a couple of years ago, and I think a lot of self-employed folks folks will recognize this, that if you don't manage your revenue well, you will end up in trouble with the IRS, right? Right. And my husband, who's self-employed for complicated reasons, did end up owing more tax money than he could pay off at one time. And our tax people, the CRA in Canada, were not happy with that. The upshot of that situation is that he made a consumer proposal, which is fine. We were not adequately advised about the impact of that, On me, Mm. and as a result, I lost access overnight to all credit in my business.
1: Oh my word! Yeah,
0: like I literally sat down on bookkeeping day at the end of the month, and discovered I had no credit. So I had to right away overnight, and I owned a holistic uh, stress and trauma clinic, a group of group practice, uh, bricks and mortar, Um, and overnight I had to run that business on a cash only basis. So, in January of twenty nine. January of 2020, yes, I have to get my dates right. We went for dinner and celebrated the fact that I had made it through a year of running the business on a cash-only basis. And that was thrilling, except that in March, we had COVID. Yeah. And previous to that, so these are two, stre- two major, major stressors in my life, right? Running the group practice, anybody who has managed people will understand what it's like to wrangle people. It's extremely difficult, And I was learning that this was not where my strength lay. And so in November of 2019, I announced to my team that I was either going to close the practice or run it as a group if they wanted to run it together as a group. So coming into 2020, my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in March of 2020. My daughter had a health crisis. She's an adult, but still I'm her only adult supporter. So my business is breaking down, COVID is going on. And as we got further and further into 2020 and the transition from a model where I was running the business and getting paid to run the business to uh, cooperating as a group where I no longer got paid for the work I was doing was extremely demanding and uh, the transition was not working well. They were supposed to be stepping up and I was supposed to be stepping back and it didn't work. So in August, I said, that's it on X date. It's yours. Do with it what you please. I'm returning to solo practice. And it was under those very stressful circumstances at that amount of time that I reported to my therapist about an incident that had happened at home where Ian, my husband, had said something about, I don't know, not shutting off a light, not taking the garbage out, like something stupid. Something that, is meaningful and important interpersonally, but is not a significant issue. Mm -hmm. And I lost my shit. Like I've never in my life screamed and seen red like I did that day. And I was telling myself, you know, I'm extremely stressed, it's okay. It was fine between us, we repaired the ruptor, it was good. But I was telling this to my therapist like, yeah, this is just a function of how stressed I am. And he's like, "Uh, I think you need a break. And and I said, sure. Well, I was planning to take a week, and he's like, mm, no, 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 no. He said, I want you to I want you to consider if you can take an extended leave. And thank God for profit first, because I was I you know counted my pennies, and that money was being saved for a trip to Cuba. But uh, one of the blessings in disguise of COVID, of course, is that I wasn't going anywhere anytime soon, so I took a stress leave instead
1: wow what was going through your head when you realized that you needed to take more than just you know just a little week to to recoup when you when you realized now i gotta take a month maybe more what were some of the thoughts that were going through your head well
0: you know it's some real humble pie right like it's a mm-hmm. real opportunity. I'm just like my therapist just served me out a nice big dish of humble pie, right? Heal or heal thyself and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I did. I it took. I had to sit with it. I really did. I there was a part of me that knew he was right, and a part of me that said, "How is this even going to be possible?" And. I'm grateful because the groundwork was laid. I did not come into this situation naive about mental health. Because as a trauma survivor, I've been on a recovery journey for many, many years. Um, And so his suggestion fell on fertile ground. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I had to sit with it for, you know, a week or so to figure out the logistics and to figure out, just just to metabolize the information, right? And to really sink into the fact that this is make or break time, girl. Like I have to I am being called in this moment to practice what I preach, so I damn well better do it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think for for so many of us the practicing what we preach is really challenging, and I I think in addition to the humble pie, there's sort of um you know, if this were really true, I would have noticed it before now because this is what I do for a living or this can't be happening to me because I know better. Um, And that that um, is really hard to deal with. And it is interesting to me that for you it took that outside support to reflect that back to you and i'm wondering if you can speak to sort of the importance of having that outside support as a business owner and and being open even to that
0: Mm -hmm. i believe that we are stronger with support and if you stop to think about it the metaphor the story i like to tell the image i like to invite people into is those little trees that are planted in a new subdivision and they have the great big root ball and they give them a nice big deep hole and then they got the tree and the tree has those rubber rings around it and then the guy right it's got a root ball it's really solid it's got like even um, from the point of view of a lever like it has that heavy it's not gonna go anywhere but it is so much stronger when it has that support in place or a dam that's got a hole well it's obviously going to be stronger if you have that support in place somehow as humans we think that with support if we ask for it it makes us weaker but literally it is true that the opposite is the case we are stronger with support um for me because dissociative process is my coping skill not being fully present to what's happening in me was my way of coping. Knowing that about myself and having a supporter who understands that about me and who calls me into presence and awareness of what is happening. And you know, the more I practice this, the better I am at it. Uh, I'm, you know, on a day-to-day basis, not a big deal. Uh, But when the shit hits the fan in my life, as, is the case with so many people. We revert to our strengths and my strength is kind of pu- is my strength is putting my head down and getting shit done. Right. Yeah. Same. <laughs> and I, Nicole Lewis Keeber, who is a dear, dear friend of mine and a really respected colleague. She says, you can't read your own label, mm. which I think is also a powerful metaphor. Cause if you imagine yourself inside a glass jar of mayonnaise, Right. You're looking at the backside of the label. You don't know what, how to use it. You don't know what's in it. You don't know what you are. You don't know what's going on. Somebody has to be out there telling you, hey, by the way, you're mayonnaise.
1: And that means X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. So I love that metaphor. The question that pops into my mind is how do you even know that there's a label to read? Um, and then once you know that there's a label to read, how do you even go about finding someone who can read it for you like there's there's a piece of there's the the vulnerability component of even recognizing that you don't know what's going on does that make sense it
0: makes total sense and i would say that you've got it just a little bit backwards okay good because you want the support before the shit hits the fan Mm -hmm. You want to do your research, interview your people and establish a working relationship with somebody so that that is part of your foundation for every day. So that then when the shit hits the fan, you don't have to solve all the problems to get support. The support is right there and you just pick up the phone or even better, you don't even have to pick up the phone because for when it's in a crisis, sometimes it's too complicated to find the time to phone somebody. You've got the appointment on the bo- on the books already yeah. and you just have to show up. And they and they go, "Ooh. I've known you for a long time and I see that there's something going on. Let's talk about that." Mm.
1: You'll hear how Shuli thinks about cultivating the relationships we need for support, especially if we've been betrayed in the past, in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is thrilled to announce the What's Next virtual retreat. So what's next for your business? There comes a point in building your business when you realize that you're spending a lot less time fixing problems and implementing new strategies than you were before. Financially, things are pretty stable. Operationally, they're mostly pretty smooth the first thing many business owners do when they come to that realization is let out a big sigh of relief. And rightly so. You've worked hard and overcome many challenges to get here. And then the next thing many business owners do is start asking, what's next? You start to wonder just how much better things could be. Could you eliminate the parts of the business that don't light you up? Could you work with only the people who energize you? Could you simplify? Could you build a team or automate more or build an even better customer experience? These are the questions that really excite me as a coach. I love to help people envision doing business in new and different ways as their businesses mature. I love helping business owners spot the things that are fine but not great and come up with a concrete plan to improve. And I love finding the assumptions, beliefs, and mental shortcuts that keep business owners from seeing the next phase of their businesses. This summer, we are thrilled to offer the What's Next virtual retreat to guide you through answering questions like these, identifying your opportunities, and generally figuring out what's next. Together, we can assess, examine, and plan so that you not only have a better idea of what's next for you and your business, but so that you also have a plan for the concrete changes or improvements you wanna make in the next six months. So here are the details. The live virtual retreat is on July 14th, 15th, and 16th. Each day will consist of two group coaching sessions, a working session, a breakout group session, and a Q&A and hot seat coaching session. There's additional support and coaching via Slack from July 7th to September 1st. This experience is designed for a small group, 12 to maybe 15 experienced small business owners. And before the retreat, you're going to receive some homework so that I can get to know you and what you're thinking about in terms of what's next for your business so we can really hit the ground running. Now, there is no specific revenue threshold or metric of success that you have to hit to participate. You're a great fit if you've been running your business for at least two years, feel financially and operationally stable, and you're starting to ask, what's next? You'll have opportunities to get feedback synchronously and asynchronously, verbally as well as via chat, and time to process before you ask questions. What's Next will be a supportive, creative container for building a vision of the next phase of your business, as well as identifying at least six concrete changes you can make in the next six months to seriously up your game. Are you ready for What's Next? To get all the details and register, go to explorewhatworks.com slash next. That's explorewhatworks.com slash next. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. Lee Metcalf was already considering what a digital community for her bricks and mortar shop, Topstitch, could look like before the pandemic hit. Lee Metcalf was already considering what a digital community for her bricks and mortar shop, Topstitch, could look like before the pandemic hit. But once it did, Lee put her ideas into high gear. She couldn't operate the in-person classes that were the bread and butter of her bricks and mortar business, but she could gather makers in a virtual community, host live online classes and offer other pre-recorded lessons. And she used Mighty Networks to do it. Today, over 900 makers call Top Stitch Makers home. Membership starts at just $4.99 per month with options to add on events and classes for additional fees. Lee says that they have just six seats for classes in their Atlanta studio, and those classes would fill up with local folks. But today they have sewing classes with people from all over the world. Mighty Networks helped Lee discover a fresh, expanded vision for her business, and now she dreams of serving thousands of makers in her community one day. What could a Mighty Network do for you and your vision? Go to MightyNetworks.com and click Success Stories to hear more about the inspiring ways creators and leaders are bringing people together with Mighty Networks. this reminds me of a statistic that you know who knows how accurate it really is but i think anecdotally we can recognize some truth in it which is this idea that there's a huge segment of the population today who has zero people that they can call in a crisis they have no one that they consider close enough friends close enough, uh, have a close enough relationship with, that they can ask for support when, when the shit does hit the fan or goodness knows before. Um, and so I don't have a question for this yet because it's, it's like, it's, I'm processing it in real time here, but I'm, uh, I'm wondering if you see or what you see around our ability to be open vulnerable, share um, questions not in a crisis, but before a crisis or, or between crises that prevents us from building the kinds of relationships, whether it's with a professional or whether it's with friends, that then that, that creates that kind of support network for us.
0: It's very complex. And the, thing, the place I would start is mm, if you have experienced harm at the hands of another human being, the idea that reaching out for support is going to be good and safe is foreign to you, because it's actually not your experience. It's not your truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is actually not true that we are stronger with support blanket. It's the right kind of support. It's being discerning about who you choose to disclose things to and what you choose to disclose to them and how you do that. So I think one of the things that prevents people from reaching out is that they may have had negative experiences with other people that makes it difficult To reach out that's one thing but also another thing is that stress interrupts the social engagement system and so stress itself neurophysiologically has an impact on the brain that prevents us from reaching out if we don't already have safe people to whom to reach out I did not know that so the short the short story about this is that the brain has three structures it has the reptilian it has the mammalian Mm -hmm. and it has the prefrontal cortex which is our human side When we are stressed, we revert to the mammalian aspect of the brain. And we like quite literally, uh, and you can imagine uh, as you're listening, like if you place your hand in a fist with the thumb tucked inside and the fingers curled over, that when we get emotional, we flip our lids. So you open your fingers up and what's exposed is the little thumb there. And that's the mammalian brain where we experience, um, among many things, emotions and memory. Mm. And so our social engagement system is in our fingers, in our prefrontal cortex. And when we are emotional and we flip our lids, our prefrontal cortex goes offline. It stops communicating with the rest of the brain. So that's why, for example, you'll say after the fact, God damn it, I know that in that moment I should have splashed cold water on my face. Why couldn't I remember that? It's because, quite literally, where that information is stored is not communicating with the rest of you, and in that prefrontal cortex is our social engagement system. And so, high emotions, stress, gets dysregulated. We get dysregulated. We flip our lids, and lose lose our shit. Really, we we lose our <laughs> our humanity, and re, and really become very, um, if safety oriented,
1: right? Mm, yeah. Uh, being safety oriented makes me think about how good you are personally about setting boundaries around the support that you request, and it is something that I have learned so much from just seeing you model that that behavior and those kinds of asks. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of explain your process. Uh, sort of your mental process for constructing how you ask for support and how you put boundaries around that support to keep yourself safe?
0: Yes. So first of all, as I mentioned before, I know uh, where to ask. I have learned to discern carefully who's going to give me the kind of, who gives what kind of responses and therefore Mm -hmm. who or where I'm going to get the, and I choose where I'm going to get the kind of response that I want. Mm -hmm. Then I ask for what I want. So in my experience, there are kind of two, when a person is seeking support, uh, you know, has a dilemma, is facing a challenge, is upset about something, right? Either you want concrete advice about what specifically to do, or you want some kind of emotional resonance, validation, connection, um, reassurance, that kind of thing. So I find it, I have learned that it's I get, I'm more likely to get what I want when I say what I want. So when I want, you know, the emotional side of things, I'll say what I'm looking for is these kinds of responses. This also comes from couples therapy where um, we were, I was taught in couples therapy that um, if I, you know, because it's a human thing to want to fix, right? You don't want the, but your beloved to be in distress. And so some, for many people, that's your first impulse is to give advice because you want it to be better so that they don't hurt anymore. And advice is important, but first you need emotional regulation. In my experience, that's the case. Because, again, when we flip our lids, we lose our capacity to take in information, synthesize it, and use it. So that's why the emotional part is first. Um, Asking for emotional support, accompaniment, I, I, I hear you, I've been there, that's validation or emotional support and then and then say, and then I would like to know XYZ if you want specific advice. But it's perfectly fine to ask for one or the other or both. But it really supports people in giving you what you want when you say, like,
1: this is what would be really helpful to me. It's interesting to hear you say like you have to get the emotional support piece. Like you first. have to you have to re-regulate. Yeah, you have to get the emotional support piece first and i'm wondering if if for you that means sometimes that when you're emotionally supported when you are connecting with people who are expressing real empathy for the situation that you're in that now your prefrontal cortex activates again and you're actually able to connect the dots of your own challenge a little bit better yes
0: that's 100 percent my experience and that is 100 percent the experience that i have observed as a therapist in the past and working as a consultant now um and it's a general principle of neurophysiology that you you know when you're dysregulated your your greater wiser higher self is offline and you need to be emotionally re- regulated in order to be able to then regain access to that um and there's an important aspect of being empowered in this way that has to do with the inner relationship that I think is the foundation for all the other stuff where cultivating a that kind of relationship with yourself, that kind of emotionally regulating inner relationship. Um, many people, when they have things come up, they either tell themselves they shouldn't feel that way in one way or another, or they... Um, Tell themselves what to do, and you again. It's the, that it, those are not, or you reassure yourself it'll be okay. Don't worry, which is mm-hmm. minimizing, right? And these are all attempts to help, and they're good attempts to help. And the emotional regulation has to come first, right? So it's a skill to have that. Supportive inner relationship, which then empowers me to uh, have supportive outer relationships. And I want to give a caveat about this because I'm talking about it in very simplistic terms. And it's really important to recognize that if you've had adverse childhood experiences, these skills don't come easy. And so, therefore, if you're listening to this and hearing me go, "Oh, you just do this, and you just do that," and you're sitting there thinking what is, you know like that there's something the matter with you because you can't, it's not that you can't, it's that you're stronger with support mm.
1: <laughs> yes, that's, that is that is basically anytime I hear people talk about these kinds of things I'm like that sounds very easy for you and extremely difficult for me yes. um, So I really appreciate you calling that out um, you kind of read my mind as to where I wanted to go next um, with the inner relationship piece is there anything that we can do or anything that you do to sort of prepare yourself for asking for support asking for that emotional, Um, connection that you need to then be able to tackle the next piece of the challenge
0: yes so first I want to say that I've been practicing this since 2005-ish and I'm professionally trained to train people to do this and I have worked with people since 2009 as a professional doing this okay so I have an unfair advantage over anybody (laughs) because I'm a professional you know what I'm saying It takes years and years and years of practice to get competent at this. And when I first started, it was very hard for me. And so it might be very hard. And that's okay. Practice, practice, practice. Uh, Because I was not the kind of person who could do this when I started. It's not Mm -hmm. the kind of person I thought of myself as when I started. But I wanted it, you know, and that's what Mm -hmm. motivated me to do it. And I think it's just really so important to validate and to make sure that people aren't comparing my end to their beginning. So when you're experiencing sensation, like the very first thing is to say hello or to notice, oh, something's going on with me. You don't even have to know what it is, just like, oh, right, something's happening. And sometimes that alone, just that move of like, oh, something's happening is a powerful enough move that you're, you're doing okay. And we're gonna scaffold one by one through this. Each one of these steps might be a place for you to stop or you might decide you wanna keep going. Mm. So the first one is noticing, oh. And um, I invite you to use this magic formula. I'm noticing something in me is. So I'm gonna invite you, Tara, and for the listener as well, to think of something, like let's say five out of 10 irritating that happened recently. Okay. Okay. And uh, this is a five out of 10 thing, so it's not like a lifetime thing. It's just something that happened and we re- yep good. Okay. Because otherwise, if we flip our lids, we can't learn, right? Too right. much emotion makes it too hard. And could you put your finger on an emotion word related to that situation? Pissed off, frustrated? Frustrated is probably the word, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I invite you to say to yourself, I'm frustrated. And notice what's happening in your, like, physiology when you say, I'm frustrated. I,
1: this, I don't know that I can uh, voice it physiologically speaking, but Uh when I feel frustrated, I feel physically um, kind of closed up. Yes,
0: and I see you're clenching your fist and (laughs) hunching your shoulders in. Yeah, exactly. Yes, (laughs) right, okay. And um, so now I invite you to say, I'm noticing... Something in me is frustrated.
1: Mm, I'm noticing something in me is frustrated.
0: And notice what's, what's happening in your body now compared to what it was like before. Yeah. What do you notice?
1: A, a, a little bit of release. Uh, I also took a breath. I heard that. <laughs> After, <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yep. So that simple move of there's an I and an it and you mm. are noticing it. That's relationship plus distance. So the metaphor that a teacher of mine used is like having your head in the soup. When something's happening to you, you've got your head, and your, your head in the soup and you're drowning, right? You're just fighting to get out of the soup. You got panic, you got emotions. You don't even know what it is. Is it even soup your head is in? But if you if you have the soup here and your head is here, you can appreciate, oh, look, it's soup. Oh, look, it's carrot soup. Oh, look, there's potatoes in it. Oh, look, you can smell it, right? It's you in the mm-hmm. soup and you're experiencing the soup. Whereas if your head's in it, you're literally drowning and fighting for your life. And this is the same, this is the move, distance plus relationship. I'm noticing something in me is feeling whatever.
1: Mm. I love a script, so I will be using that constantly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so noticing is the first step. Uh, are we ready to move on to the next well, the, step? The second step is to say, to articulate to yourself, I'm noticing something in me. Oh, okay. Is.
0: Yes, so that there's an eye and something to look at. Perfect. So you notice and I, then I you al- have the relationship.
1: Yeah, I also really love the distance peace. Because I think for me personally, um, self-disclosure wise, (laughs) um, I think of myself as a very unemotional person, but the exact opposite is true. I'm an extremely emotional person um, who is extremely sensitive to other people's emotions. And the way I have dealt with that in my life is to shut it down. Right. And so um, the idea of giving it distance uh, it's kind of staking a step back from it, depersonalizes it and it just makes it a lot uh, safer feeling to examine it in a um, in a critical and I don't mean critical in a negative way, but in a critical Curio- with curiosity. In, yeah, with curiosity exactly. Yes. I mm-hmm. love that.
0: And it's important to note that it's distance and relationship because here's where uh, I want to point to like the toxic positivity kind of bypassy mm-hmm. thing. It isn't that, oh, it's over there now and I'm fine. It's me noticing that it's over there and what's happening with it and developing the relationship with it that will allow it to then Mm. reveal its wisdom to me. Mm. And this then is the next step where you can begin when you have an it, you can begin to describe it. And so you started describing it by using an emotion word, but you could also describe what you notice and how it, if it has a body posture, if it has a shape, a color, it doesn't have to necessarily be a being, it could be a rock, it could just be a color, right? So you begin to use your kinesthetic and it could be heavy, prickly, soft, dense, right? And as you get to, as you begin to describe it and to become curious about it, then it instead of you telling it, oh, be quiet and go away, oh, don't worry, it's not a big deal, oh, you shouldn't be feeling this way, the trust begins to develop between you and it, and it's like, oh, you're not actually here to kick me around, you're actually interested in how I am. I know this sounds a little like, woo, but it's true that as you start to describe it, that it will begin to um, unfold. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the rest of the process is, sensing how it feels, letting it know um and it's a back and forth. You like heavy. No, actually it's not exactly heavy. Heavy isn't exactly the right word. It's more like dense, dense. Is that it? Is that the word that fits? And you check inside and and it feels oh yes. Yes, dense is right. Like I can feel the rightness of that. Right. Okay. So I'm letting it know I I know it's dense. And then and then you pause and see and it says, Yes, I'm dense and you know. You know, it begins to unfold and share its wisdom. And again, this is a process that is difficult to do on your own. To this day, when I want to go deeply, I have three standing partnerships with other practitioners of the focusing process, which is what this is. And it's with them that I do my work. It's, it's recognized um, in the focusing community that doing this work on your own is um, more of a challenge. And I've never actually done this process by myself except as journaling sometimes. Hmm. But I have peer practice 3 times a week where we exchange and hold space for each other to do this. And I think that's wow. really important to me.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you had said about practicing and that you have an unfair advantage and I think that really highlights just how much practice you do do in order to have the facility with the process that you have. Yes. Um Let's uh, shift gears just a little bit. Um, where do I want to go? Well, you mentioned toxic positivity. I would love to talk about that <laughs> because this is a, this is a major area of interest for me. You know, so much of what we see as quote unquote support out there, especially for women business owners, is sort of either full on toxic positivity or it's at least toxic positivity adjacent, can you, let's start first by having you define what is toxic positivity?
0: In my experience, something strikes me as toxically positive when it is used to squelch my actual experience. It minimizes or invalidates what I'm going through There's also the assumption you'll hear that negative attracts negative, and if you spend too much time on negative, you're just going to draw negative to yourself. And in my experience, the opposite is true. We have a knee-jerk stance to pushing away, right? Like our our first reaction Mm -hmm. to something unpleasant that we don't want to experience is to push it away. But I don't know if you have ever been with littles like toddler types, and if you get Occupied on, preoccupied with something like the phone, for example? Do you, have you ever noticed what happens to the littles when you get on the phone?
1: Um,
0: or when you get preoccupied and
1: not fully attentive to them? Uh, well, I know at least with my kid, it was just mom, mom, yeah. mama, mama, mama. <laughs> and if you ignore
0: it, what happens?
1: Uh, it just gets louder right, it and more insistent.
0: <laughs> and if you take a moment and put the phone down and say, honey, what is it? What do you notice happens?
1: Um, she will express what she needs, and I can either tell her that she can have it, or that I will make it happen, or she, tell her that she needs to wait.
0: Right, exactly. Some of the time they're like, "Oh, never mind," and some of the time right. they tell you what they want, um, and then you can get the space to go back to the to what you were doing to then circle back and. How this relates to toxic positivity is that our insides are just like little kids in this way. The more we push them away, the louder they're going to get. And it's really being in this antagonistic relationship with negativity that brings more negativity. And paradoxically, when we take, like, if you imagine the physical stance again of, like, leaning to the right looking over your left shoulder, extending your arms out and pressing palms up like you're leaning away from something you're pressing. If you hold your physical body like that for a long time, it hurts, right? And the stuff never goes away. It just gets harder and harder to push on and your arms get weaker, right? And Mm -hmm. if you imagine, and, and I invite you to try it if you're listening, to put yourself in this stance for a moment and then to put your hands down and to take a breath and just notice the difference when you put your hands down. And this practice I invited you into a little earlier of saying I'm noticing something in me is, is equivalent to putting your arms down. It's, it's a shift toward a relationship with yourself that is in and of itself positive. But it doesn't squelch what's going on. That is... So helpful. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to pause a minute. The only way out is through, people say. And this is the through, is the Mm. saying hello and the noticing. That's cultivating a positive, warm, kind, compassionate relationship with yourself. And that's true, positive in the sense that it's actually beneficial to your mental health, to your physical body, to
1: your brain. I love that. It is that is seriously so helpful. And I loved what you said about it's not the negativity that is the problem or that creates negativity. It's having a bad relationship with the negativity. And that feels very, very true for me. I also, you know, you had said about toxic positivity being something being anything that's used to squelch our actual experience. And I think for so many people, we are just so used to our own experience being discounted or misunderstood or ignored. And there is so much power in being able to voice that experience as true, even if it's just for yourself, right? I agree. Yeah. Okay, I wanna go back to a question that maybe I should have started off with, but we're gonna tackle it now, which is, you know, I think we can all agree that building a business uh, presents some challenges to our mental health, right? Um, I can't, you know, it's funny how so often when I talk about my own mental health challenges people uh, say, oh, that was so brave of you. And I'm like, I don't think it's that brave because everyone I know who's an entrepreneur deals with some form of anxiety or depression or some mental health challenge. What is it about building a business that challenges our mental health uh, so consistently? Well, there are six factors that
0: I have identified from my experience. The first is VUCA. And if you're familiar with the acronym, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. We face it every ding-dang day, yeah. right? There's totally. the cost of the hustle, which depletes our resilience, this is number two. And then the isolation that we experience because we are busy, which doesn't give us opportunities to socialize. There are, people don't get us. They don't get the entrepreneurial experience, so we're not well understood. And then there's the need for impression, the perceived need for impression management and shame associated with any kind of vulnerability. That, and so the cost of the hustle and isolation have a mutual feedback loop because hustle leads to isolation leads to hustle. You know what I mean? There are Mm -hmm. barriers to support, which we talked about er earlier. You know, entrepreneurial poverty is a thing, and so getting the appropriate support for your mental health is a challenge for entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs often link their self-worth to their business success. And this is not uncommon. Like uh, Many people identify themselves with their jobs, but for entrepreneurs, it is so much more intense and intimate, that connection. And then finally, um, entrepreneurs come from a group of people in the majority who are predisposed to mental health challenges anyway. Mm -hmm. Part of what makes us entrepreneurial is part of what, it's the certain characteristic, pool of characteristic traits that um, the group of entrepreneurs come from And we bring that to the table with these others. But I actually lied because there's actually a seventh factor. And the seventh factor is that these six potentiate each other. (laughs) They are not additive. They are exponential.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that is so true. That is so true. And I'm sure everyone listening uh, can uh, find that in their own experience as well. and it's just so helpful to, to hear someone say, hey, this is, it is really what's going on. It's not all in your head. Or maybe it is all in your head, but it's not, but it's there for a reason. But it's there for a reason. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. The, the degree of adversity that we face as entrepreneurs,
0: and it's not even negative impact adversity, it's the level of demand
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, the rate and intensity of demand that we experience—these are not things that other people, other people experience. Uh, especially now in the pandemic, for example, things are volatile and uncertain for them. It's very complex to solve these problems, and there's a lot of unknowns in this pandemic world for people. But they, um, they experience only that, or they experience it in combination with um, isolation, maybe. Or, but these six factors are present for every entrepreneur all the time.
1: Yeah, so true. Um, as we start to wrap up here, because um, unfortunately we are running out of time, um, where I think where I'd like to leave this is around cultivating the practice of requesting support um, and how we can identify What we can even request support for because so often when i talk to business owners they don't know what questions are quote unquote okay to ask they don't identify uh, a frustration or a challenge or even an opportunity they have as a chance to ask for support what can we do to bring greater awareness what do you do to bring greater awareness to the things Uh, that are going on that you want to request support for?
0: I have a regular practice. And um,
1: this is what I advocate for people I work with. I um,
0: support people in identifying what are their lag and lead indicators for their mental health and and developing a mental health plan to uh, monitor uh, and adjust as they stay accountable for the implementation of their plan um without the regular daily and weekly supports that i have in place for myself i my head would be up my butt <laughs> i would i would have no clue i would have no clue and i want to say again in, in the name of comparing my ends with your beginnings that i started with one thing mm-hmm. and then i added in another thing and then another thing so now i have a very co- complex network of support from but i started with one thing um what's really important is that it should be small and doable and that you do it because in terms of building neural pathways, it's small repeated actions that create the new neural pathways. Uh, it's And that's, for example, why your big spa date doesn't make you feel better when you go back to work because it's a good time out and it's important, but it also doesn't have an impact on the day-to-day, whereas the small doable things do. And having that um, self-connection either And this is what I advocate for people. You know, we have biz BFFs for our business plans and we check in with them and we talk about our goals and our performance and our challenges and all that kind of stuff. You need a biz B, your mental health plan needs to be an integral part of your business plan and you need accountability for your mental health plan just like you need for your business plan. And so I advocate for people to have their biz mental health bff so that every week you have an agreement that you check in on where am i and you don't even have to talk about depression and anxiety per se it's sure. more a self check-in uh how how am i doing today and sharing with somebody and and saying what does that mean now for me and especially with the pen like i mean i work in this arena you'd think i'd have my shit together and i do <laughs> in under normal circumstances But it's like, I'm a very, um, what I experienced, how I experienced the pandemic is I'm a a very skilled athlete. I'm a great baseball player. I know everything that I need to know about playing baseball, but I've been tossed into a football game. Right. And so like, again, comes to the humble pie part of, I, I do know what I'm doing, but not under these circumstances. So I have to check in again and again and again, and even more and tweak more and be more responsive because that's what enables me
1: to take the steps to care for myself i love i do know what i'm doing but not under these circumstances it certainly applies to this very bizarre moment that we are in and this heightened level of volatility but i think it also applies on so many other levels as well and especially for business owners you know, even in their own, you know, little sort of bubble. I know so many business owners who, you know, they had great corporate careers, for instance, and they know what they do inside and out, but they've never done it inside their own business before. That doesn't mean that asking for help, uh, whether with business or with mental health, is shows that they don't know what they're doing. It's just that they don't have a reference point in these circumstances that is so helpful and there are some transferable skills an athlete is an athlete a person who plays baseball has some
0: athleticism that they can transfer to football but they have to learn the rules of football as well
1: fantastic i know this conversation is going to help so many people and hopefully inspire so many people to get the support that they need shuli what are you excited about right now
0: I'm writing a book. <gasps> tell us. Tell me more. Uh, well, can you guess what the topic can like? The topic is so obvious. It's women entrepreneurship and mental health. I love and so it. it's starting with um, I'm doing this is my year for research. So I'm inviting women entrepreneurs to tell me their mental health story and to share their tips so that um, and, you know, as I was I didn't think of this as a blog series initially, but as I was doing the research, I thought, you know, it's going to take three to five years before this gets published, and it's not right that these women are sharing what's so powerful for them that it should be uh, not available for the next three to five years until I get the book published, right? So now I have a, I have a blog series where these I'm sharing with these women entrepreneurs have shared with me because I believe that um, uh, growth resilience is growth through adversity, right? Despite adversity. Um, and these women, we develop these skills as entrepreneurs, these resilience skills, these very powerful skills of mental health and um, self-regulation just through experience. and that ha- Which is different from the medical model of pathology and fixing it. These are strengths-based stories of mental health and how people have ma- remained mentally well. And so I'm sharing those in a blog series. Uh, and then next year I will analyze the data develop the themes write the chapters and share the book but in the meantime I get to share it this way and um uh, so that people can have it now wonderful
1: I will be checking that out I hope all of our listeners check that out as well the link will be in the show notes Julie thank you so much for this conversation sharing your personal stories and also giving us some really concrete ways that we can go about taking better care of our own mental health, getting the support we need as entrepreneurs.
0: Thank you. I'm so, we could talk forever. We could. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: What's most likely to stop you from getting the support you need? Is it a lack of people you trust to care for you? Is it a belief that you don't deserve or need care at all? Is it a difficulty naming what you need and how you'd like to receive it? I hope this conversation with Shuli has given you a fresh perspective on how you can become aware of the support you need and how you can ask for it. Find out more about Shulamit Berlevtov at shula.ca. That's S-H-U-L-A dot C-A. And if Shuli's story of taking a break to prevent burnout resonated with you, I've got some really good news. We're talking about taking a break throughout July, and I'm even taking a little break and handing the mic to a guest host for the month. I think you're really going to love it. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. And this episode was edited by Marty Seefeld. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation.